0: Come in.
1: Hey, man, I'm sorry I'm the truth
0: Shut up! You're here! And good thing, because we've got lots of work. <laughs> it's Employee of the Month with Katie Lazarus talk show featuring unforgettable guests with incredible jobs. And now, here's my boss and your host, Katie Lazarus. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Employee of the Month. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus. You know that because you just heard the intro. Um, if it's your first time tuning in, Employee of the Month is all about careers and When I first started the show, one of the questions I wanted to know the answer to is what do you do when you want to save the world for a living? And when I was young, I did so much social service and I loved it. I did 10 hours a week of community service in high school. I went on and was doing a master's, and I worked on teen pregnancy, and I um, worked in Head Starts, and I worked in foster care, and I got burned out. And I stopped. And I was also excited to do something creative with my life, and I totally switched, and I'd never done anything creative before. And I, I don't regret doing what I do, but I didn't know how to really fully do both at the same time that's why I was so excited to have Jen Marlowe on the end episode today, because she has committed herself wholly in a way that I've never seen before. And I know a lot of people who are activists, but she really was the inspiration for what do you do when you want to save the world. Um, And that's what she does She aspires to do so And and goes around um, to so many places And you'll hear our interview But um, just in case, just to give you some background um, She has done a play There is a field that's currently touring right now As well as books like Hours of Sunlight I am Troy Davis And Darfur Diaries Um, She also has a new film out, Witness Bahrain As well, you can go to donkeysaddle.org To check out her works But I thought it was really fascinating To speak with someone who is committed 1000% to social activism, and they happen to also enjoy theater and education, but they're all in the mission of
1: um, getting the word
0: out. So, if you're a do gooder or want to know what it's like to be one, here's someone who is really good peeps. Enjoy our interview.
1: Let's
0: stand up. Jen, I'm, I'm thrilled to be with you and I've um, been aching to have you, hankering to have you on the show, so I'm, I'm really grateful um, to have you here and I'm particularly grateful to have you here today um, because you have this beautiful, exquisite play out right now called um, There is a Field and it is the um, anniversary of a um, seal's um, birthday and he um, passed away and I... His... Life uh, was the inspiration for the play, as well as the way that he tragically was killed. And so I wanted to hear a little bit um, about that
1: sure. and and thanks, katie, for for having me on today. Um so yeah, today is Asil's birthday. He would have been thirty three years old today. Um he was killed when he was seventeen years old. Asil was a Palestinian citizen of Israel uh, who was from the village of Arabe, which is in the north of Israel. And uh, in October 2000, there were demonstrations um, right at the start of the Second Intifada. There were demonstrations also in Palestinian villages inside Israel. And seal was um, at one of the demonstrations, um, not doing anything um, violent in any way, and was charged at by three police officers, one of whom reached him um hit him on his back with his rifle butt, and when a SEAL stumbled and fell face down, he was executed point blank in the back of the neck. Um, And that was October 2nd, 2000. And so the play that you were referring to there is a field. Um, I actually started working on that really soon after a was murdered. A had been my camper, so he was a kid that I that I knew and I loved.
0: So let's talk about that a little bit, just because that's how I also got to know you um, is through Seeds of Peace. And um, my older brother was Ned was in the Middle East and and was one of the um, co-founders of the Coexistence Center there. But he had also worked um, at the camp with you and with a seal. And I'm just putting that out there to say both our connection and also, um, one of the many bittersweet ironies of a 17 year old kid being murdered, um, was that he was wearing a seeds of peace t-shirt. He was, um, a camper. So when you say one of uh, my campers, sometimes I'll say one of my brother's kids, you know, and it's because you guys had such intimate relationships and I don't mean sexually or romantically, but I, I really mean, um, uh, you know, these tender relationships with these children because you stayed in touch all year long. It wasn't just a summer experience or, um, I don't even want to put the just there, but the kids came for a coexistence camp and, um, would continue these relationships throughout the year. And so they, they really formed, um, bonds with one another as well as with their counselors. Does that sound accurate?
1: Um, yeah, I think I think certainly, in the years before the second Intifada, um, okay. the relationships were it was easier for the kids to maintain those relationships. I'll never say easy, but it was it was easier. I think there was a lot of things that shifted um when the Second Intifada started, um which was in late September two thousand. Um, but, but certainly it was very true that the relationship between the staff and especially those of us who are year round out in Jerusalem, like I was with your brother, Ned, and with the kids were, was very strong and very close. And, um, and the was, was one of the kids that everyone on the staff and all of the other participants and campers, he was just one of those kids. Everyone was drawn to, um, his charisma, his intelligence, his sense of humor, uh, everyone wanted to be close to him.
0: Now, part of the reason you um, left Seeds of Peace is because you had a different idea of um, what you wanted to do Next, is that correct, or
1: well, I mean, the 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 main reason I left at the precise moment that I left was because I was fired by Seeds of Peace, um, yeah. and and a lot of that had to do with um, the way my politics were evolving. And um, at the time that I left Seeds of Peace, uh, and and certainly through the work that I was doing afterwards, I no longer really believed that programs like Seeds of Peace um, were really the. The best, or or even a helpful way to address the Israeli Palestinian conflict.
0: Let's talk about that because um, I I know um, a little bit, but not a lot. So I really want to hear about your particular experience um, because you've worked in so many capacities um, working. <laughs> in so many different countries and on so many different ways of approaching conflict and conflict resolution. I mean, one thing that's, one of the many things that's spectacular about you is that, uh, you've worked in Afghanistan, you've worked in Seattle, you've worked, um, on so many different issues, but also approach conflict resolution in so many different scenarios that you have, um, I think a very unique lens into it.
1: Well, I mean, when it, when it comes to going deeper into the critique of programs like Seeds of Peace, and it's not—it's not a critique of that specific organization, yeah—but it's a critique of um, organizations of which there are many, which the. The whole substance of the program is based on this idea of humanizing the quote-unquote enemy and bringing young people together face-to-face to to humanize one each other. Now, on the surface, that seems really lovely. It's a lovely thing for people to see each other as human beings when they've had dehumanized impressions of each other. Um, The problem in contexts where there is such an imbalance of power and privilege Programs like that tend to whitewash that structural imbalance and tend to be predicated on this idea that the core of the problem is one of hatred, and that the parties all are equal and that they just need to learn how to see each other as human beings and and that if they could overcome the hatred, that that would lead to the conflict ending. Um, in most cases of conflict uh, in most parts of the world where I've seen it, hatred is not. hatred of the other is not. The root cause of the conflict. There is hatred, but that hatred is an outgrowth, um, and that the root cause of the conflict is an imbalance of power and privilege. And so, programs that um, that center humanization and don't center um, a dismantling of those structures of power and privilege, um, with with the idea that those that and I, I do I do think joint work can be very useful. It's not that I it's not that I don't agree that Israelis and Palestinians have work they can do together that would be useful, but that work needs to be about dismantling those structures of oppression and building in their replacement structures of real equality and structures of real justice.
0: So just to clarify, it's not that um, so from your point of view you see it that, look, we have a priority that we need to do. And in, in the way that we would talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, for example, that people need food and shelter. Do you know Maslow's yep. hierarchy of needs? Um, you know, And then as they acquire certain things, they can move up into something like self-actualization, let's say. But initially, here are the core issues that we need to deal with. And there's um, poverty and, and inequality that needs to be dealt with. And by poverty, it can be anything mm. from...
1: Um, well, and I'd say the poverty comes out of the inequality. It
0: comes out of the inequality. So, the,
1: so that until the poverty that poverty is an enforced okay. poverty. So,
0: other people would say, like, yes, we need to work on those things. But because those things aren't going to be, um, you know, worked on right away, we should be doing all these other things too. And there'll be programs, anything from, um, you know, teaching uh, young people uh, conflict resolution skills so that they can you know learn how to speak with each other um, but not necessarily be addressing the inequality in that program. and at the same time there'll be a program of like poetry for peace and people will be you know doing poetry workshops and they'll be learning how to do poetry and express themselves artistically in that way. And then there may be an organization that's also working on eradicating the inequality and um, all of these organizations are happening all at once and I think that's where we're at right now.
1: Well, I don't think there's enough organizations that are are really working on um, on the issues of structural oppression and structural inequality and supremacy and I think the the danger of saying like well, all that work can happen simultaneously and it's all good and it all needs to happen. The danger is if you're not addressing the root problems, you're actually in a lot of ways um masking them okay. And, and when there's, when there's a, a situation of imbalance and you're trying to portray it as balanced, you're actually skewing the situation and that can create actual damage. So let's talk about, so you had this
0: epiphany. When, when did that really um, come? It sounds like in 2000 for you was when that happened.
1: Well, in 2000 was um, when I started working full time for Seeds of Peace okay. and it was also when a SEAL was killed. Um, and I think that it took a while for me. To, it wasn't like a moment of clarity where right. everything revealed itself at once. But I think seeing what happened to seal and the fact that there was never any justice for that, that the police officers who killed him um, had complete impunity in doing so, um, and that the society in which seal was a citizen largely was comfortable with that, uh, that was became progressively more and more troubling for me.
0: And since then— um, what have you felt that you've done that better addresses that inequality?
1: Well, I, I think the work that I've done, uh, I left Seeds of Peace in 2004. So the work that I've done since then in the past 12 years, um, I think is, is trying to directly expose and address injustices. How? Um, usually through different forms of storytelling. And so I've made several documentary films, um, the play that we've talked about, I've written several books, I've done other forms of shorter writing. Um, and in all of those, I believe in the power very much of, of storytelling and of people's stories. I believe in humanization. Um, it's, we're, you know, getting back to what I was talking about, about humanization, but I believe, um. That when you're when you're trying to expose injustices, the best way to do that is to show people in their full humanity and show the human lives in a very deep way who are most impacted by the injustices.
0: So let's let's talk about that because um, you've done so many. You know, um, Hour of Sunlight is a, a book about. Um, someone you worked with at Seeds of Peace, Samuel Jundi, um, who was also, you know, worked so closely with my brother as well.
1: Your your brother finds his way in a lot of my projects. You- <laughs> in two of them, right? Yeah, two. I guess that's yeah. a lot. Yeah. Well, I mean, you guys all worked intimately together. Right. Yeah. I mean, I can cons- I consider your brother as a brother to me as well. Yes. And your your niece and nephew, I you know call my niece and nephew. So Aww, that's really sweet. Yeah. I love them. So
0: you have d- done all these documentary films, books, plays. My my fear with art and obviously as a, a fellow artist, um, you know, I obviously love it and and see the need for it. And as someone who grows from seeing your work and so many documentaries and plays and, and films and and reading books, I don't want to discount the um, relevance of them my fear with them is that they reach um, an audience that wants to go see them.
1: I think that's always um, the struggle the struggle for me, the hardest part of the work that I do is uh, is not going into the field in terms of going where I go to meet people and 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 collect the stories that I'm that I'm working on even though there's aspects of that that are hard and, and painful and challenging but for me the most challenging part is, once back here, trying to create space for people to be able to hear those stories and not just reaching folks who are already engaged or already involved or who already care that's that always feels to me to be the the uphill battle
0: one of the things that you're also working on that I have um a zillion feelings about, and I'm trying to um figure out, and I think everyone does but uh is you've you've really started to work a lot with Black Lives Matter.
1: Well, yeah, and the Black Lives Matter movement, um, to me, is connected to the work that I've been doing for years around the death penalty and around the criminal justice system. Um, State violence in this country takes a lot of different forms. So um, for me, there's inherent connections between the state violence in the form of the death penalty that killed my friend Troy Davis five years ago and the state violence that killed mike brown and eric garner and tamir rice um which is part of what launched the black lives matter movement into the national discourse in the in the level of prominence that that it currently is um so for me those those are all interconnected and they're connected with the with mass incarceration they're connected with all so many other forms of of structural injustice that we um are experiencing in this country so You've worked on so many different
0: issues. Meaning, I am Troy Davis, um, which you worked the book on the book with his sister, Troy uh, with
1: Troy as well. Troy participated okay. in in the book, um, but the pri- but it's primarily told from his older sister's perspective.
0: Um, there is a field was um, told uh, primarily, I believe, from a-, a seal's older sister as well. <laughs> Apparently, um, yes. Hour of sunlight was about you know working with Sammy, who is a Palestinian, um, who. Was instrumental in in setting up the Caucasus and Center for Seeds of Peace and and helping it run as well and about um his own life,
1: yeah and and really Sammy's story for me what was so important about Sammy's story was was not so much the work he did with Seeds of Peace even though that I that I, I greatly respect him for doing you know for the work that he did and he was my colleague for years but I think Sammy's story provides a window into a quintessential Palestinian narrative that we don't. Get access to in this country. Absolutely.
0: I mean, Sammy now works in a bakery, and and essentially um, has had no opportunities um, both to continue the type of work he was doing, meaning work where he could um, involve himself um, as a speaker, as a leader, as um, you know, doing direct service um, because he is not American or Canadian or um, having the same kind of opportunities that other people do either elsewhere um, or. If he had been um, Israeli,
1: absolutely. You know, as as a Palestinian, that limited Sammy's opportunities to begin with. The fact that he had been in Israeli prison for ten years as a as a political prisoner for having, as an eighteen year old, um, he he was choosing to resist the occupation, and the only way he knew how to do that as an eighteen year old was through militant means. Well,
0: but that's also um, the only means that people in that particular area are given, meaning like you can join Fatah or you can join Hamas at the time.
1: I mean, well, Hamas didn't exist at that time. Okay. But yeah, Fatah or PFLP okay. or one of the other. But what I mean by groups. that,
0: much more importantly, is, is not necessarily like me going to college is not so revelatory. <laughs> <laughs> People in my milieu uh, growing up in America as someone who's, you know, middle class or above go to college. And um, or or have have the luxury to do so, right? Um, but people growing up where Sammy was growing up, there's tremendous pressure um, to to join into this. So there's actually um, no other way um, to exist. I, I mean, I, I don't know how anyone would have existed there without joining.
1: Well, and I think that's that's part of what I mean by his book um, being a window into this quintessential narrative that we're very unfamiliar with um, by and large in this country. Um, And it's not and it's not just um, any pressure that Sammy might have felt to to join up with the group, but also a real desire on his part to fight on behalf of his people's freedom and their dignity and their independence. And that was the only options he saw options that were presented and how to do that. And when you're talking about limiting things that are limited in his life now, because Sammy spent 10 years in prison as a in Israeli prison for fighting occupation and for resisting occupation, that continues to play a role in what opportunities he can't get a visa. He couldn't get a visa to come to the U S to go on book tour for, for his book that we co-wrote. And the book is absolutely sending a message about peace, um, and, and coexistence. Uh, that's what Sami stands for. I couldn't get a visa because he'd spent 10 years in Israeli prison for having fought occupation.
0: I found his um, story e- even more nuanced, um, and I loved it for it that, and I'm so glad you wrote it um, because he chose in prison to um, become so educated, and that's often um, a place where people um, do, you know, get get a chance to read, and it's so p- pathetic um, that that is the only time when so many people are given a chance to to get the type of education they, they really deserved and yearn for, and that, that's that been throughout history. I mean, if you look at Nelson Mandela, if you look at so many, um, I'm, I'm not stereotyping, but I am stereotyping when I say many people who are disproportionately black who are in prison, a lot of times um, that's the time where they get to read. Yeah. And, and he um, really became so... Um educated in so many ways that it it was really a revelatory book to read, to see this. I think it's a it's a much more nuanced picture of what it means to be um, involved in the struggle, what it means to work towards peace, what it means to work towards coexistence. I think for people not in your um, field, there it's easy to make um, I don't know, generalizations based on movies you see or things like that.
1: oh, well, there's 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 so many. Um, very damaging stereotypes that we're exposed to through the corporate media and entertainment industry that would that would lead towards those generalizations and but just one thing I want to say about Sammy's reading in prison it wasn't it wasn't even so much that he made an individual choice that he wanted to spend those ten years reading and educating himself. To me, what was so fascinating learning about Sami's prison experience is hearing how highly organized the Palestinian political prisoners were as a community. And there was a there was an in-depth, intensive education program that when Sami entered prison as a new prisoners, the older prisoners had developed. Um, and they they saw their job as educating the younger prisoners and as building the humanity of the younger prisoners and Sammy um, went through for the first several years of his prison experience went through a highly structured education program hmm. um, and then eventually was able to to choose his own reading material and and further all of that but um, but that's something that's really extraordinary about the Palestinian um, prisoner community, at least in that era, was Sammy talked about his years in prison as being the most pure form of democracy that he ever experienced. And he's talking about the democracy among the Palestinian prisoners themselves, the democratic systems they set up for self-governance. How as a playwright do
0: you feel, um, and an author and a documentary filmmaker, um, when you have such a political drive and, and you have very strong feelings about the issues. How do you carve out, um, you know, the different arguments or the different voices? Meaning, do you feel like that's important to show? Do you feel like, you know what, I'm just going to tell this one person's story and, and that is enough.
1: I think it really varies as to what project I'm working on. So can you give
0: an example of if that came up for you in any of the projects?
1: Well, specific. I'd be a little, I guess i need sure. a little more clarity as to what you're asking.
0: Um, So like in there is a field, Um, there is a debate at the end of it, a little bit, it felt like about um, whether coexistence is something that can be achieved in the way that a SEAL's camp that he was going to achieves and his sister feels like it can't. And you see that a little bit play out in the play Mm -hmm. a bit. Um, Was that important for you to show these two different sides of the debate? Or was it like, I'm just going to tell... Um, her story or his story, how did you approach these larger issues? I mean, you have larger issues at play when you're writing a story about these individuals. How do you balance writing this person's individual story and um, those larger issues?
1: I think for me, the, the larger issues are most effectively revealed when they're revealed through the personal stories. So my commitment in writing there's a field for example was to a seal and to his family um and and for their voices and their perspective to be heard and to be honored my commitment in writing i am troy davis was to troy and to the davis family um unapologetically this was their story i was not trying in order to claim to be trying to be writing something that was going to present all points of view on all sides of troy's case this was troy's story and his family's story um the hour of sunlight was Sammy's stories. There's things in the hour of sunlight that um I disagree with. Um, but it was Sammy's story, and I had agreed to partner with him in telling that story. Sammy has a view of of Seeds of Peace and the value of programs like Seeds of Peace that I, at this point, and at the point that I was writing the book with him, don't share. Um, but I on you know, I felt I like think it that's was why my I was responsibility confused. to really honor Sammy's Sammy's perspective because it's in the end, I was partnering with him. For him to tell his story
0: that's really helpful what you just said because i think i was confused and i was like but what from sammy um did like seeds of peace in many ways and, and same with a seal and this is really helpful like you have a different um point of view from your accumulated experiences and yet when you're writing these books um and plays you're honoring um the person's point of view that you're representing there as a storyteller
1: yeah, and, and with There is a Field, because the two main characters, which were Nardine and Asile, had that disagreement in terms of how they both felt, um, you know, I, I, wanted, I wanted that to be shown, but through their points of view. And if it came up in post-play discussions, if people asked what my point of view was, I was not hesitant to share that, but in the play, it's really, it's, it's a conversation and a debate between Nardine, Asil's older sister, and Aseel.
0: This is a great segue, um, to what I really want to talk about is your life as an activist. Um, since I've known you, um, you have been a remarkable activist in so many different areas. And, um, I just wanted to look back a little bit with you if that's okay. Um, <laughs> a retrospective, a little bit of a retrospective, just because not everyone knows you. Um,
1: uh, after college, where did you go f- So I moved to Seattle after I graduated from college, and in Seattle, I was working in children's theater. Um, And so initially, I was working at Seattle Children's Theater. I was an intern there. That was one of the first things I did after college, and then eventually uh, ended up starting a theater education outreach program um, where we were getting grant funding from the city of Seattle and going and bringing different kinds of theater opportunities to uh, public school students in Seattle.
0: And you also went and worked um, with Seeds of Peace. We've talked about that. But also um, you went off to Afghanistan, I think, at some point. Yeah. Darfur. I wanted to hear about those experiences. So
1: I, Afghanistan was actually, while I was still working for Seeds of Peace in 2002, the organization started an Afghan program. They brought 12 uh, Afghan kids to camp in the summer of 2002. There wasn't really... Um, a thought out plan for what would happen to these kids and what their life was like and what they were going, what they had come from and what they were going back to. And so I convinced the organization to send me to Kabul so that I could really um, first and foremost, check in on the kids and, and assess what the impact of the program had been on them and whether it was a good idea for the program to continue and just have um, a presence in their lives. Because otherwise it, it just felt very much like the kids had been, plucked from Afghanistan brought to the summer camp and then we're just kind of tossed back without any follow-up. So I felt, so that was what Afghanistan was. It was me wanting to make sure that these kids had some follow-up. And what about Southern Sudan? Um, so Southern Sudan grew out of the Darfur film. So I did two, I did three different projects in Sudan. Um, in Darfur, we did. I did a documentary film with my colleagues Adam Shapiro and Aisha Bain. Um, we went to Darfur at the end of 2004. At that time, um, Darfur wasn't being covered by the mainstream media in the U.S. This was before. This was before the Save Darfur coalition. Before George Clooney told us to care about Darfur and Angelina Jolie, and all of that happened later. At the time that we went to Darfur, it was really being. Um, the crisis there, which which amounted to um, mass ethnic cleansing, um, mass killings, and expulsions um, in villages all over Darfur, as a what you could really describe it as a an incredibly harsh and brutal um, counterinsurgency. Yes, I mean had, from the government,
0: it had been going on throughout the '90s. I mean, I remember working at the State Department um, in I want to say '96, um, and already you know, dealing with, with what was going on in, in Rwanda and also, um, there. So it had been going on for quite a while.
1: It, there had been, there had certainly been problems for quite a while, but the, um, it was in the early, it was in 2003 that a sort of a new rebellion sprung up in Darfur. And so the response to that then from the government was one of, of basically scorched earth campaign of all of the communities and villages, um, from which the rebels had come and so that so the intensity of what started happening in 2004 2000 you know, 2000 between 2002 2003 that's when things really the intensity of that scorched earth campaign really flared up and so you wrote a book and, uh, and did this documentary film as well yeah and then that led me to South Sudan because I for me, The more I began to try to understand what was happening in Darfur, the more I realized that I needed to look at Darfur in a larger context. And that larger context included South Sudan. Um, And so I ended up being um, trying to learn as much as I could about South Sudan and then was approached by these three young men who were from the uh, so-called lost boys community. Yes. Three young men who had been resettled in the U.S. in their late teens and early 20s, um, who had been from South Sudan and then had spent most of their childhood in refugee camps in Ethiopia and then in Kenya, came to the U.S. in 2001. In 2007, they were planning their first homecoming trip back to South Sudan, and they didn't know what had happened to their villages. They didn't know if their families had survived. Um, They just knew that they wanted to go back um, and look and see and find some ways to contribute to their homeland. Um, And and they wanted to bring a documentary filmmaker with them um, to record the journey, Um, both because they they instinctively understood there'd be some really powerful moments um, that could be captured that could be used to educate and teach an American audience. And also because they had ideas of projects that they wanted to do at home. Um, One one of the young men wanted to build a school. One of the young men wanted to help a clinic get off the ground. The third young man wasn't sure at the start what he wanted to do. He ended up uh, deciding to drill wells, but they knew that having a film as part of the as part of this project would help them with their goals. So they invited me to to partner with them um, and work on the, the the film piece of it.
0: What do you get out of making art?
1: What do I get out of making art? Um, My feeling is that I want to use whatever tools I have um, to be able to be part of a struggle for the kind of world we need to be struggling for. And so I guess everything I approach I approach more from as an activist than as an artist. But for me, these different artistic platforms are tools that I've developed and that I love that I enjoy, you know, I get satisfaction out of out of the process of creation as well. But for me, it's I'm an activist first, and I'm a filmmaker and writer and playwright and artist and all those other things in service of that. I imagine
0: leading all of these workshops and talkbacks after these things, because you do so many of them, and for so many years, even though you're covering so many different issues, you're going to hear a lot of similar opinions over and over and over. In the same way that if someone asked me to write a book about leadership, I could come up with like, Here's about 10 archetypes that people generally fit in as to what enables them to succeed after doing, you know, 500 interviews, right? Like that, that's where I'm coming from. For you personally, um, do you ever get fried from this? Do you get burnt out?
1: Do I get fried or burnt out from the work that I'm doing? Do you mean, or do you mean specifically the element of work of engaging community and public conversation? Both. Um, so, I'll answer the second part of that first, and then the first part of that second. Um I know, actually, the part of the part of the work that I think I always consistently enjoy the most is um is when there's the opportunity to engage with whether it's audience members of the play or the film or readers when it's a book or at book talks. Um, I feel like those moments to really engage and have a conversation and be a part of, be a part of challenging people, um, be a part of opening people's eyes, giving people a platform to, to express um, their points of view, and hopefully those points of views have been sh- shaken up in some way by what they've experienced through whatever work I'm, preve- you know, work I'm presenting. I especially love when there's opportunities to reach students. So when I have opportunities to speak, whether it's at high schools or at colleges, those, that, that's absolutely my favorite thing to do. Um, so I don't, I don't think I've gotten burned out or fried on that. I think my perspective on which of those conversations are most useful, um, has shifted.
0: What do you Um, find most useful now?
1: Um, I think, or I get most useful, or I guess also it could be phrases what I'm most interested in and what I'm most, most interested in, um, are the spaces where my work is a part of movement building and the conversations that are, that are being had are, um, are in that frame, in the frame of movement building. So the conversations that we had with There is a Field, which is a play that deals with a Palestinian kid who was killed by Israeli police, when we brought those play, that play to historically black colleges and universities, and we were talking to, the and the black students afterwards were processing the play and finding all kinds of points of connection to their own lived experience of police brutality, of structural inequality, of impunity, of racism, and they were deeply connecting to the story that they were seeing on the stage and the conversation then was not just about how were these oppressions linked, but then if those oppressions were linked, how could the struggles for liberation and for justice and equality also be linked? So those conversations, and that's what I mean by, by movement building, um, connecting people in their struggles. um, That to me is, is most exciting. Um, I'm not as interested right now it's not to say i don't find value in it but i'm just i'm not as interested necessarily in i've done a lot of work where i've brought sammy's stories to synagogues um and and i've had people talk about whether or not we're going to bring there as a field to, to more mainstream jewish american audiences i do think there's value in that work i think there's value in um in changing people's perspectives um But I think there's actually more importance and more value in in the movement building aspect of the work, because that's where I actually believe that real change is going to come from.
0: Um, Well, that certainly happened, I would say. It's interesting that you say that, Um, because you're Jewish. And I was curious, how much does that play into um, being part of social service, civil rights, activism?
1: I think it played a really formative role in terms of where my social justice, um, like my social justice stomping grounds or training grounds, I could say, was growing up in the Reform Jewish youth movement, um, which had a real emphasis on social justice and social action. And so I went to Jewish summer camp and Jewish youth group, and, and this was in the 80s, and we were marching against apartheid. And we were, you know, we, that it, was, it was absolutely a part of what I understood that it meant to be Jewish Um, it's not, it's not as directly a part of the framework of the work that I do now. I mean, in acknowledging that that's where its foundation is, of course, and I would never, I would never try to mask that. But in, but in terms of the work I do now, like the anti-occupation, the anti-occupation that I do, um, in Palestine, Israel, I don't do because I'm Jewish, I, I have a lot of friends who that is the case for them. And and I and of course, being Jewish and the fact that the Israeli government then tr- tries to claim that it does what it does in the name of all Jewish people certainly gives me, I feel, a special responsibility to, to speak out. But it's not the emotional place from which I'm working. What is the
0: emotional place for you?
1: The emotional place for me is that there's something like really fucked up and wrong going on. And I have a responsibility to respond to that
0: it can be so easy to essentialize things and say, I do X because I'm Jewish or I do things because I'm American or, you know, and, and I think what you're saying at your emotional core, it it may not be one thing in particular that drives you, but, um, all of it, whatever it is for you personally, brings you to that point.
1: It's not even so much that it's accumulation. It's I think for me, it's not my response to what I'm seeing happening in the world is not coming from like an identity place. Mm -hmm. um
0: where is it coming from
1: i think it's it's coming from it's coming from a feeling that that i if i see something going on that's wrong and i have the ability to respond then i need to respond and that doesn't come from like a particular piece of my identity whether that you know as an american or as a jewish person or as a woman or and i don't think it's just that it that it's all of that together it just it comes from i think a a core belief that we that we all that we all have to take care of each other in in the world, and that we are all responsible to each other, and that we're all responsible for for working to build the kind of world that that will mean that all of our children can grow up in safety.
0: Neither you nor know I have children, which brings me to my next question: um, How do you sustain a living? Um, you you don't have an apartment. You go all over the world all over the country um from issue to issue how do you survive
1: well in terms of like the sustaining a living part that's it's that part's <laughs> challenging um and i've got a couple different ways that i earn money um i've you know do Part-time consultant work for some organizations. Um, when I'm screening my films, or you know, or getting grant funding for different projects, I'm able to pay myself something through that. Um, but mostly, I figured out ways to live my life that I that are pretty inexpensive. Um, I don't pay a steady, regular rent. Um, I don't. I mean, I don't. I don't have any real expenses except for my cell phone bill, and I mean, I do. I do pay some rent where I'm staying, but it's, you know, it's pretty prorated. Um, I want to um, encourage people to go to
0: donkeysaddle.org to learn about your work and find out ways they too can get involved, find out ways they can see um, all the different projects you're working on. And if they're in New York, Witness Bahrain is um, screening. And can you just tell me a little bit about that film?
1: Yeah, sure. So it's screening on Monday, the 23rd at Rabbit Hole Studio at 7pm for folks that are in New York. And I was in Bahrain in the summer of 2012. And I was um, essentially embedded myself with pro-democracy, pro-democracy activists and human rights activists who... um, had been part of leading the Bahraini Arab Spring um, and calling for democracy and human rights from the Bahraini regime and were also paying a very very high price in the ensuing crackdown um, that happened um, and and continues to happen in Bahrain and so in the film um, I follow one Bahraini activist as she takes me all around the country and we meet with doctors who had been imprisoned and tortured by the regime because they had treated injured protesters, we met with the family of a fourteen-year-old kid who had been killed by riot police because he was uh, shot at close range with a tear gas canister in his head, uh, we met with nurses who were working in underground clinics and stitching up kids who were injured um, who couldn't go to hospitals because they'd immediately be arrested because hospitals were militarized, um, and so it's a collection um, of all of these different people um, that uh, that we met with who through all of these different individual stories are telling the larger story both of um what bahrainis were struggling for what's happened to them in terms of the the regime's crackdown but then also a story of real real courage and resilience and people who are continuing to struggle for their basic rights no matter how high a price that they pay well thank
0: you for your courage and resilience and um for continuing to reach out and connect with so many people all over the world. And, um, I'm really grateful for all of your beautiful work. I'm going to again, recommend that people go to donkey saddle.org, um, where they can find out more and thank you so much, um, particularly for coming today.
1: Thank you, Katie. It's great to be here.
0: I want to thank Nick Rad and HeadGum. Um, I want to thank all of you for listening and I want to thank my brother um, Ned because I met Jen um, and I had the pleasure of working with some of the kids at Seeds and and I know that the Seal, who we spoke about um, was so devoted to the work and actually um, I have a quote from him in this book about how much he worshipped my brother and it is so beautiful to see um, so many activists and see them grow and I'm so grateful to Jen Marlowe for continuing to shed light on them um, have a wonderful wonderful rest of your day hope this inspires you to do something a little nice for someone even if it's yourself just do something
1: good you be